Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode that we are airing of The Pit Perspective. Um, Basically, we are a podcast that kind of just talks about um, some of the history of marginalized communities here in Pitt County, whether um, that be the Black community, Hispanic community, LGBTQ community. Um, Currently, our segment that we are going to be um, airing for you guys will be on the Black community, and I'm going to start introducing our group. Hey, my name is Bimmel. Hi, I'm Mads. And I'm Abby. So this week I interviewed one of our group members, On. She is a member of our group and also a member of the Black community here at ECU. Um, we talked a little bit about her experience with re- race relations growing up, as well as her experience with race relations at ECU. So now we're going to go ahead and listen to the interview that I did with her, and we're just going to discuss it as a group. Hey guys, welcome to Pit Perspective. Today I'm going to be interviewing On Overby, who is a member of the podcast. Hi. So, On, <laughs> can you describe your general upbringing, where you're from, your family life, and culture? Um, so, I grew up in a rural town called Roxburgh, North Carolina, and it is 40 miles north of Durham and borders Virginia. It is a predominantly white area. And I was raised by black parents there, so. So can you tell me a little about tell me a little bit about your goals and hopes for the podcast? Because I know that this is kind of new to you. You were kind of put in the group. Um, so I hope our podcast like sheds light on African Americans and other minority groups in Pitt County and like the struggles that a lot of these people have faced, especially with like, I remember we talked about gentrification and yeah. like what this campus being here has done to minority communities. So what about your race makes you proud? Um, I like William Black because there's just so much like stuff that black people do. Like my hair, for example, I can have my hair straight, I can wear braids, I can wear curls, and I have a different hairstyle every single day of the week, and my hair won't fall out. <laughs> and black people, we, you know, we have our own, we create our own, like, genres of music. We influenced all types of musics. We have a bunch of different dance. We influenced a bunch of different styles of dance, our clothing. We start trends. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, as a black woman, What's your experience with race been like growing up until now? Because I know that you mentioned that you grew up in a predominantly white community, and now you're here, and kind of what's that been like? Um, Growing up, like, I don't really... Race wasn't really talked about in our area because it was mostly white people. And, like, even, I think from elementary school until I got to middle school, there were three black kids in my class. We didn't have any Hispanic children. I don't think we ever had any Asians. Wow, that's really interesting that, I don't know, growing up in such a diverse town like Jacksonville, North Carolina, um, and especially with my parents, like, I don't know, personally, as a white child, I was kind of always taught what, like, black, white, Hispanic was, not necessarily in a, in, um, a negative or a positive way, but that it was there and that it was recognized. And the fact that, like, on's hometown, like, that wasn't a discussion at all. Like, race 
was treated like, you know, it was like a bad word. Like, you don't talk about those things. Like, there aren't any differences, quote-unquote. We don't see color. It's just really interesting to see how much that can influence race relations in a certain town because um, just coming from such a diverse area, uh, that was always something that was a little easier to talk about than, I guess, other areas of North Carolina. Um, Just something, I, I don't know, I didn't ever realize. Yeah, I also came from a really diverse area. I was in the Triangle, and even in elementary school, we'd have days where we just learned about other cultures, and like at a young age, I guess, we were taught to have an appreciation for other cultures and understand the diversity and the significance of it, and just really learn that while we are different, each culture has its own meaningful symbols, traditions, and I think that from where honest from, where she never talked about it, it just, it doesn't give people that same sense of like understanding of other cultures, which I think is really, really important. Yeah, I agree, because I grew up in the same area, so it just never really crossed my mind that there were places where people didn't have those conversations and weren't exposed to that kind of stuff, so hearing her talk about that was really interesting to me. I grew up in not the most diverse area. It was predominantly white, and then we had like a pretty big Hispanic community because I'm from Texas. Um, but uh, my school, from like elementary school to middle school, it was like a private Catholic school, predominantly white. But we still, like, I feel like we still talked about diversity a lot, which is like kind of contrasting to what on experience. So we never talked about it. And then like a few years ago, like right before Black Lives Matter um, protests started happening, um, we started having a lot of incidents race related. And we actually had an incident where the KKK had a parade through our downtown. And the police just watched that. Actually the police gave them protection through the town. So I actually spoke with Ann after the interview and we talked about this a little bit more and she mentioned that these KKK members tried to march through a town nearby and were blocked off. They were stopped from going in. So they went into her town and there they were escorted through. No one was arrested. And so that was just something that was pretty shocking to me to hear. Yeah, that's very, very interesting that, I don't know, when you think of North Carolina, you don't really think of like deep south where you hear about those kinds of things. I mean, my dad's from Georgia, so of course, like, you know, the Confederacy and, you know, the KKK, that's stuff that you would think about in Georgia and, um, you know, even Florida and Alabama and places like that. But North Carolina, you think, you know, like Mason-Dixon line, like that's, that's a little too far north, I guess, to put it, you know, a little idealistically. Um, But I don't know, I just can't imagine growing up in a town where something like that was almost validated in a way, like no one told them. I mean, I understand freedom of protest, like I'm one of the number one people to advocate for like our freedoms that are listed, but there's also, a difference I mean you can see it between the town that was next to her town and the town there is you had people who were you know 
main figures in that town standing up against it. But then here you had your own law enforcement kind of like, well, this is just how things are. And like I said, coming from a military town where our marches were just like military, mar- like like celebrations where we celebrated people who were in the military of all color, of all different backgrounds. Like there was never really something so symbolic of hatred just waltzing through our downtown. Like that was never an occurrence. And to be in Ons position and to have to see that, like when you're in high school, when you're in your like developing years, I don't know, that's just kind of mind-blowing. Like, it kind of makes you think, um, what else have we kind of validated throughout the South here in North Carolina, even, you know, here in Greenville? Uh, Growing up, I always, like, thought about the KKK as almost like something in the past, uh, something to be ashamed of almost, a bad part of our history. And to me, I would never think I would encounter even a member of the KKK, much less a protest in my own city after they already got rejected by another town, them just coming and marching into my city. Um, I feel like it'd be very upsetting for me, and it's just really surprising that they can just do it out in public so boldly. Yeah, I never like really realized that the KKK was still around when I was younger. Like, I feel like not until high school did I, like was I aware that there are still people who are a part of it, which was just so bizarre to me because it did seem like something of the past, like something to be ashamed of. Yeah, like, I feel like when we were taught about it as children, they taught about it like it was something that was in the past that wasn't going on anymore. So I was like, oh, this is just a part of our history, but it's still going on and like or yeah on's experience kind of shows that like this is something that still needs to be talked about oh yeah definitely the fact that she said this was a year before blm like that had to be like what 2019 um like that's recent we were 17 years old then i was in high school sitting at my desk like not having to witness something like that and the fact that on did and the very few people of color in her town that were there had to witness that also it's almost like everyone that you grew up with that quote-unquote didn't see race all of a sudden it's like they're turning a blind eye to that other perspective where all they see is race completely and it's just like I don't know it's kind of ironic that she grew up with this um stigma she puts it that race was kind of a non-existent thing and then all of a sudden she's 17 and race is everything um and it just i don't know it kind of makes you wonder and then the next year black lives matter protests started happening i started protesting and then like as we were talking about the Confederate statues in town, you could like tell that like the white kids I was best friends with in school, because that's all we had, weren't as friendly towards me because I was standing up and realized, oh, like I'm black and I identify with my race and they never saw color. I thought it was like really interesting how she said after she started participating in the Black Lives Matter protests, the people who she had grown up with and been best friends with all through her elementary and middle school and high school years started like seeing her differently, which is like, they like kind of were turning a blind eye to her race and her identity and her race before, but once she started like becoming like proud of it and standing up for it and what she believed in, they were like treating her differently, which was, 
Uh, and I think that kind of goes with the misconception that in an ideal world, nobody sees color or nobody sees race. But that's not what you want. You, you want to see color. You want to see race. You just want to accept everybody and understand everybody equally. And I, I think that just kind of displayed itself when for so long when on wasn't really like actively standing up with her people. Everybody was cool with her. Everyone was friendly. And as soon as she started uh, protesting, she started being uh, more of an activist. Immediately, she noticed a difference within her own community of friends that she hadn't noticed before. And that kind of shows that it is important to see color and race, but just from a friendly and understanding point of view. Yeah, and to just kind of tie that back into Greenville, I mean, it just, what she just described, kind of it, it honestly reminds me of things that were happening in my own hometown and even and even more in Greenville, you know, towards the latter end of 2020. I know most of us were just getting here around then, but um, I remember reading so much like in the school paper afterwards and just reading stuff back home and all. And there was such a divide. It's like you grow up, you grow up with these people. And I feel like we hear this in the South a lot as well. Um, you grow up with these people who are like, no, I don't see race. Like some of my best friends are black. Some of my best friends are Hispanic or Latino. And that's not something that I, you know, recognize. I don't treat anyone differently. And then immediately when someone that is black or a person of color starts to talk about these issues it's like almost like you turn against them I don't know that's just a pattern that I've seen that these white people that claim to be like quote-unquote allies because they don't see race immediately become like the enemy because the person that they were kind of disregarding the whole time finally want to step into that spotlight and say hey like race is important to me and my values and it should be something that's talked about and then i don't know also the confederate statue um today actually at work i was speaking to a customer who was telling me about the confederate statue that was torn down here in greenville and um after the blm protests and the movement and everything that was sparking throughout the area around here and it just kind of reminded me of, you know, the mural on First Street that says um, United Against Racism and all these other symbolic acts to be anti-racist by the um, city of Greenville. Yet so many black community members keep talking about and keep forming organizations and trying to hold, you know, meetings and stuff like that to get the city to actually bring the black community to the table and to actually make sustainable decisions and sustainable um, solutions to actual race relations in the area. And stuff like removing a Confederate statue, painting a mural that says we're all united. So many symbolic acts are done instead of actually tackling the real problem that's there. And I feel like that's really, um, interesting to see how that spans in so many other cities and towns because I mean it kind of just shows you that a lot of governments and you know larger organizations whether it's higher education or whatever it is they constantly take these symbolic moves and then you know do nothing with them at the end of the day yeah like um the painting a mural and stuff is good for like raising awareness but it doesn't solve systemic racism like mm -hmm. there's other stuff that has to be done so was that like the first time that conversations about race were really brought up during your upbringing 
Uh, no, my parents, they always, we always talked about race, and they were always like, you're representing from like the time I was little, you know, go out in public, act right, because you're representing all of us. Or like, even, like, I'm trying to think, people would tell me and my mom we were like, good black, because we have pretty hair, I have fake light eyes, <laughs> I'm going to admit that on the podcast, and we're light skin, so like, I would be, I would be told about this from, from the time I was like, three Till now, I have good hair. So the idea of like a good minority is something I've experienced personally, um, being Indian. Uh, I'm from an area of India where Christians are common. It just happened a long time ago. And me being Christian, I feel like I almost get special treatment because my friends automatically think I'm kind of like, one of them, even though whether I was Hindu or Muslim or Jain or anything, I should still be considered one of them. And you know, a lot of the times I would be getting these like almost, not even almost, these backhanded compliments where they're like, oh, you're pretty funny for an Indian or something. And it's like, at first, you know, when I was younger, I'm like, oh, I guess I am. And then I realized when they say that, it just means automatically they assume like someone of a minority race is not on the same standard as they are. And it just makes you realize, like, while they are complimenting you, they're bringing down your people, and you're, you're one of your people, and you just can't let that happen. Yeah, um, that's something, as a white woman, I've never had to experience. I mean, I'll be one of the first people to admit it. Some of my family is not the most clean cut out there like i mean there's i have a lot of like low income family in the south a lot of um i mean if people would put it that way i guess more of the trashier side and honestly even then i mean i was taught manners and i was taught responsibilities but i was never taught i mean as on mentioned to watch myself in public because I'm representative of my race. I was taught to watch myself because I'm representative of myself. I've never had to be a symbol for my entire race just because of the stigmas that are held against me. I mean, like I said, coming from like more of a white trash family and still not and actually, you know, fitting to some of those stereotypes, but still because we're white, not really having to worry about our behavior like that on a larger scale, it's just, like, it's, I don't know, as a white woman, I, I keep thinking that things are so mind-blowing, because, I mean, it, it really is, like, that's never something that you've been raised to think about. Yeah, like, growing up, my parents always told me to, like, take pride in my appearance, like, brush your hair, brush your teeth, like, be a healthy person, be cleanly, but it was always, like, to, like, represent myself as an individual and not to represent my entire race as like a white girl mm-hmm. what else happened oh when i was in preschool the first my first experience to race i mean my first like exposure to like i'm a different color than everyone was this kid in my class was like mommy why do they look like that <laughs> yeah, it always starts with kids. Yeah, they were like, oh, why is she a different color than the rest of us? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> that was, like, that just goes back to how she said her town, like, doesn't really talk about race and diversity and stuff like that. Because, like, that toddler who was hasn't been on this earth for probably, like, three or four years had never, like, seen or, like, or recognize someone of a different color or race, which was 
I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. And, like, she was confused why he was confused. Yeah. Because she was, like, so young and, like, had only been exposed to the white people in her community. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know. A childhood memory just kind of pops up for me. I went to Stateside Elementary School. Miss Parker was my guidance counselor, and we had her every week. Had her all my years at Stateside. And Martin Luther King... Um, day was her favorite holiday every year because she would love to like celebrate what he did and teach us about it and I mean I don't I don't think I understood the holiday's importance on as much of you know on as much as I do today like on the level that I do today but um, back then I just something that sticks out I remember we would be coloring like colored pictures of MLK and one day she brought up she was like you know a lot of like my white students in here they start coloring MLK black because we say that, you know, we're black, but it's like we have brown skin. And like just the fact that that was such an open dialogue to like all of her students of all different colors, like, hey, it's okay to have confusion, but I have like brown skin and I'm a black woman and this is why MLK is important. He was black and it's okay to ask questions. And I think that's something really missing today um, in our conversations about race is that open, positive dialogue. Yeah, earlier when I was saying how, like, even though my school and elementary school was predominantly white, we still, like, learned about diversity and stuff, and, like, MLK Junior Day was really big for us. Um, like, I remember just every year that being a huge celebration at my school, and, like, uh, over the summer with my mom, I was going through, like, all my old, like, she keeps, like, everything from elementary school, and I was going through, like, my work from first grade, and it was, like, Every day we had to do a little writing, and one of them was about MLK, um, Junior, but yeah. So has ECU been a positive space for your race and ethnicity, and if it is, how so? Um, last year, well, my first year, I was like pretty uncomfortable because I, was, I grew up in all white spaces, but coming here and not being able to find any black people that I could relate to was just a culture shock. And then like this year, I feel like ECU has been a really positive space because I've been like um, participating in a bunch of black student union events. And I've also met a lot of people from like the African student union and attending like cultural events with people from the same race has been a really nice time. So do you think that ECU has positive race relations based on your experiences so far? Um, in my personal experience, I've had okay experiences with race relations on campus. I did have an incident a few weeks ago. I was waiting outside of my dorm to go downtown, and this white girl drove down the street and shouted the N-word out of her window as she was passing. And I just couldn't believe that that, ha that it happened. And I've heard similar stories from other students on campus. Uh, so this is the second incident our group has heard about where they were just walking alone and a group of people would come up to them and abuse them verbally, say some slurs. And clearly with just two people in our own group already experiencing that, you know, it means not every college campus is the safest place for everybody. For me personally, like I said before, I grew up somewhere that was super culturally diverse. Uh, I feel like just because people are exposed to so many different cultures so often and for so long in their lives, um, they learned how to go about it a little bit better. You know, they watched 
what they said, or not even watch what they said, they just wouldn't think in certain ways. And so coming to Greenville for me was a, kind of a different experience because it was majority a white college. And then, I mean, it wasn't as bad as like me getting verbally abused or being called any slurs. I remember just walking down um, my dorm, I was on a different floor. Somebody opens the door, <laughs> she looks at me, and she goes, you look like somebody who can fix my TV. And I was pretty confused. Because I was like, I didn't know if it was because I was a guy or because I was Indian. And, and then I asked her, and then she was like, oh, you guys do, like, tech support, right? And it just it showed me, like, that's actually what she thought about all Indian people, like, tech support. And unfortunately, I couldn't help her because I suck with technology. But it, it was a little mind-blowing to me. Like, she figured we only knew one thing or only one job, even though I was in Greenville. So that's just been my experience. Honestly, I think, like... That kind of just goes back to what I was saying about establishing a positive, open dialogue about race early on within, like, cultures and family um, structures and in schools and stuff like that. Because, I mean, you think about how many different places all of us came um, from whenever we first came to Greenville. I mean, me and Vimmel both said we came from more of, like, an ethnically diverse place. And then you've got so many kids here that didn't come from a place like that. And no matter how much ECU or higher education or social media tries to teach, you know, it's okay to have diversity and it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to support people who need that support, like minorities who need support from their allies. And it's like, there's this mental blockade from people who were raised a certain way because that positive open dialogue was never established. And I don't know, I just think that's so essential because without having that dialogue, no one's ever going to talk about or think about these kinds of things. And they're going to stick in those ways where they think they can approach someone and say, you know, something so, I don't know, just focused and closed-minded almost. I hate to put it like that, but. I agree, like, uh, education about diversity and um, how to, like, celebrate diversity, um, needs to start at a young age. Uh, I remember, I don't know, I don't remember where it was, but I remember seeing like n- like news articles about how, I'm pretty sure it was in Texas, I need to check up on this, but I'm just gonna go with it. In some county in Texas, they were trying to like remove education about Native Americans in like history in school for elementary kids. And I just thought that was so crazy because like we're living on the land that was theirs like it like was rightfully theirs it was taken from them (laughs) and just to like erase that from our history is just so wrong um yeah just like touching off of that again I mean that open positive dialogue like not only does there need to be a dialogue established because people want to remove that history you know from schools and curriculums and stuff sure but how I mean, I just think that history not only needs to be there and needs to be, you know, taught to create that awareness, but it also needs to be, as I keep saying, talked about in an open way to, like, you know, create this dialogue where people can ask questions and they can approach the subject with kind of a curiosity to kind of fully understand why exactly it's wrong. Because, you know, something just about, like, social media today that sometimes bothers me is that you know, we'll be, like, posting about these issues and stuff, and some of these posts can be so harsh and so, like, you're wrong. 
and you need to do this and you like but if you create this open dialogue that's like you know here is what I think is important needs to be talked about let's hear about what you think is important needs to be talked about and let's establish a way to communicate this not only openly and positively but professionally and you know in a communicatively way because without that that's where people start to build up like I mentioned before those mental blockades and they block out anything that you're going to try to tell them because that's the only way that they've been raised to process that information. Yeah, I agree, because people really like to argue. So if you kind of set it up as like, oh, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, then people aren't going to want to have those conversations. They're going to just, like, argue about it. But if people are willing to talk about it openly, it'll be a lot easier to bring those topics up, to, like, have those conversations and to kind of, like, bring not exactly awareness, but you know what I mean, like... It'll be easier to converse about it because you're not worried about somebody trying to argue with you, telling you that you're wrong. You kind of already answered that already, but do you feel like race impacts your daily life and specifically your experience as a student? Yes. I feel like race does impact my daily life, especially because of, like, my name. Like, I could tell that the professors had looked at their roles before I came into class and they saw on over me. But when they called my name out and they saw the black girl sitting there named on, they were just like, what? But other than that, I feel like in the classroom, I've had pretty decent experiences. Okay, I have, like, obviously I'm white. Like... But my last name is Hispanic, so I've had similar instances. Like, obviously, I don't have a lot of room to talk, but I would take, like, Spanish classes in high school, and they'd be like, why are you in Spanish 1? And I'd be like, what do you What do you mean? And they would just be, like, looking at their role sheets, kind of, like, stereotyping because I had that last name that, like, I automatically knew the language already and, like, they were kind of surprised about that. So that's just kind of something that I thought about when she mentioned that, like, them looking at her name and then being shocked by her appearance or, like... And I mean, honestly, I think it's okay to, like, talk about the kind of conflict that someone who is, like, kind of half and half with their identity is, like, the conflict that you guys face. Because I have two really close friends that are both half Hispanic, half white. One's more white passing, one's more Hispanic passing. And it's just, you know, really interesting to see how many conflicts they face daily because of that. Not only, like, in themselves with, like, establishing their identity, but also, like, how others establish their identity. And, like, I think, I don't know, I just think that's something that's, like, okay to have discussions about because that really is something that people like not only to just have half white and half Hispanic but I mean people who are half white half black um they always have faced like this like kind of identity crisis that no one ever really talks about because I feel like it's kind of put down in a way because it's the quote-unquote not as important race issues but it's still important yeah like I've heard um a lot of stories about people who grew up mixed race and they just feel like they don't fit in. How do you envision a community and campus where racial injustices are approached with sustainable solutions? Sustainable solutions. I don't know, dude. 
That's a hard question. It is. It's hard to think about. A sustainable solution. I never even thought about it. Because, God, this is going to sound so messed up. This is going to be on record. But, like, honestly, I feel like in a world where there's different types of people, you know, you can try everything to create safe spaces and all. But I feel like racism is so ingrained in our communities, especially in East Carolina, that there's nothing you can really do except for, like, you know, have higher penalties for people who ride by the drive down the street and yell slurs or create more safe spaces. Or, like, I don't know, you can't really force people to believe in something or mesh with other groups of people they don't want to. Something about that that I wanted to say is, I don't know, this conversation that I've ha- I have had with someone kind of, like, changed the way that I think about social issues like race and, like, gender issues and stuff like that is um, if you look at the beginning of history, we've on- only gone up exponentially in the past century. Um, if you think back 50 years ago when a lot of people probably had, you know, a similar mindset of, you know, this is just how things are. There's no way they're going to change. And then you look 50 years later, and so much has changed, like, ridiculously. And I know it's kind of unrealistic to be like, we can make things perfect, because there's never going to be perfection in any aspect of any social issue, economic issue, what political issue, however you put it. But I think there is, again, just touching back to that open dialogue thing that I was talking about, where people can positively talk about race without feeling embarrassed or without feeling, you know, ashamed of not, you know, knowing as much about it as they think they should or of having certain perspectives and mindsets that they were raised on. I think if we create this space where we can create that positive open dialogue, that will open so many doors. Just based on our conversation, is there any, like, last thoughts, anything that you think that the listeners should know? Um... I think our listeners should keep listening for the next episode because we're going to cover some deep stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to us. I'm really excited to bring this together. Thank you. So that was a really great interview, and I feel like we covered a lot of important subjects. For me, at least, uh, I realized how closely around us there is racism and things that might make us uncomfortable. And I also learned that other minorities share really similar experiences, and I learned we also share different experiences. So for me, it's been pretty great. We have another interview lined up for us next week. Uh, keep up with us by following our Instagram at the Pit Perspective. That's the dot pit dot perspective. Thank you. <laughs>